This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to part two of our interview with Liz Raposa and Gene Rhodes. We pick up right where we left off uh, with the last question, and that is kind of figuring out where the mentoring field goes from here in light of new research about the effectiveness of mentoring. And we also spend a little time reflecting on Gene's long career as a leading researcher in our field. So we hope you enjoy part two, and thanks for listening. So I want to thank you both for kind of pointing out the issues that our field has been wrestling with a little bit. And I've talked with other podcast guests about this, uh, Sam McCullen uh, last week, a few guests last year, you know, and this notion that the friendship model of mentoring maybe isn't enough to meet the needs of certain young people that wind up in our, our programs. And Gene, you just mentioned, you know, this elevated risk that kids referred to programs are are bringing and Gene, I know you've been working on a, a book on this topic and have been kind of beating this drum on your Chronicle of Evidence-Based Mentoring blog uh, for a while. I, I guess for our audience, you know, could you describe a little bit the direction you'd like to see the field go and, and how would that change the structure of programs, right? So if we get more specified and ask more of our mentors, you know, what would that change about kind of the fabric of the youth mentoring field? Yeah. Um, and Liz, you should feel free to jump in as well, because I know you've given this a lot of thought as a clinician. Um, what what I have come to the realization is that there's really two types of mentoring programs. There are targeted mentoring programs, ones that, you know, like Tim Cavell's, which targets kids who are being bullied, or Sam McQuillan's, which targets kids who are making the transition through middle school. And those programs tend to get better effects, in part because they can really target the issues that are um, very, very salient to the young people with evidence-based tools. The problem comes with larger programs. And, you know, you, you picture like a, walking into a Walmart and every single person wants something different. And it's really hard for a program to be able to serve every single one of those different kids. And so that's where it becomes much more of a challenge. So I would say, you know, I, I, I gave that a lot of thought and I came up with a couple solutions and I think that the field really needs to innovate more. You know, one solution that Liz has been working on with Sarah Schwartz is really teaching young people to recruit their own mentors and mentoring programs have an important role to play in that and saying, you know, you may not need the formality and structure of a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but you need a role model. You need somebody to help shepherd you in the direction you want to go. Let's figure out how to recruit somebody. But then there's kids who really need that that structure. And, you know, one thing we can do is embed the mentors in the settings that the kids are in. So if a kid is struggling in class, the mentor could actually go into that school and sit with them and learn the material and work with the youngster and kind of be an adjunct to the mental health or the educational staff of a setting or even in a juvenile justice system where they're getting mental health care, the mentor can be part of that system and, and practice um, the evidence-based skills that the young person's learning. And another one that I came up with is really harnessing the world of mental health apps. And 
again, in neither of these is the mentor having to deliver the treatment or the intervention. The mentor is supporting that, supporting the intervention that the young person is getting and making sure that they complete it. So that's kind of where I came up with how the field needs to move. It needs to move in the direction of greater specificity and for non-specific programs, I think those are two possibilities or three possibilities, you know, youth initiated, what I would call embedded mentoring, and also what I would call blended mentoring, which is harnessing, you know, the promise of evidence-based technological tools. I think all three of those could work. I like those ideas. I have one follow-up question that I just want to make sure I'm wrapping my head around this right. And I agree with you that programs that are more targeted and more specified in what they're doing uh, seem to be producing stronger results for young people. I, I think those programs often give themselves and their mentors a simpler task, right? We're for a shorter period of time. So I was not surprised to see that kind of shorter term things seem to maybe work a little better as well. But you're focusing on one issue and and kind of drilling down on that with the mentor's time and skills. But thinking about more general programs, right? So a, a program that kind of serves everybody that walks through the door is some of this just a matter of how those programs are evaluated? I've often wondered that about, say, a Big Brothers, Big Sisters or a similar type of program where some of the kids are there to work on academic things. Some of them are there to work on social skills. Some are needing help working through trauma. Some are interested in a career pathway and want a mentor to help guide them on that. When you add them all together and evaluate that program, you know, you're not going to find consistent results on any of those things because many of the kids are not spending any time working on any of those things. So are these types of programs kind of at a disadvantage in terms of showing their impact because of how they're evaluated, not because of the efficacy of the mentors? Or do you think that even if you were to separate out you know, results by what you focused on in your relationship, do you still think those kind of friendship-based programs would still be lagging behind the more evidence-based and targeted ones? Well, I think you raise a really important point, and that is that, you know, when you just average across all these outcomes, you do flatten whatever gains one group might be having because they're getting watered down by a lack of gains by another group. Um, and so you're absolutely on point there. But I would say that a friendship is not enough. And for, you know, and I think given the constraints, I think it made perfect sense for that. That's all the programs could offer. It is unrealistic to expect a volunteer who's unpaid and uncompensated in any way to deliver with any kind of fidelity a structured, manualized intervention. And so because of that, programs were really, that's all they could do is kind of give light um, versions of probably what would would might work in a less diluted format. I think we have overemphasized the importance of that friendship. You know, I think it was Tim Cavell who years ago wrote an article for the Chronicle of Evidence-Based Mentoring, you know, about, he called it the good enough mentor. And then, you know, by focusing only on the friendship, we kind of lost, well, what is the point of the friendship? You know, people don't just show up in a mentoring program. Usually their parents or somebody referred them to it because they have a particular issue they want to address. Um, and so, yeah, it's a combination of diluting out effects with averages and not having a sufficiently strong dosage of the active ingredient. And I would say that there's this, this 
conversation has been sort of paralleled historically in the literature on psychotherapy, right? So for a long time, people would say, you know, psychotherapy is effective primarily because of the relationship, because there's someone who is sitting with a person in distress and being supportive and reflecting back what they're feeling. And that that therapeutic relationship is really the vehicle by which psychotherapy helps somebody feel better. And for a long time, that was sort of the standard for trying to measure the effectiveness of, of psychotherapy. But over time, I think what people started to realize is that if there were individuals coming in with very specific, very acute problems, you know, struggling with a, a depressive episode or a severe anxiety disorder or um, even having psychotic symptoms, that we needed more than just the relationship in order to target those particular issues. And so I think it's kind of a, a parallel question when we're talking about mentoring. Well, no, I, I appreciate that context, Liz. And I don't know if there's any easy answers here. I guess, Gene, my question is, you know, for you, if we change kind of what mentoring is or how we ask adults to come to these opportunities, what does volunteer recruitment kind of look like then in this new landscape? If we were to go in this direction, are we seeking out folks, you know, as you found in the meta-analysis that have prior teaching and, and kind of youth support skills? Um, well, I think that, that that finding, um, you know, that Liz mentioned about having previous helping experience is a very strong signal in all the noise of these, inter, of these meta-analyses over the years. It's a very robust finding that we need to listen to carefully. And what it's telling us is that people who have who are sort of in these quasi-therapeutic roles in the past are best. And I also think we need to think about what it is that mentoring looks most like. It actually looks a lot like therapy. It's often a one-on-one -on -one relationship that's, you know, unidirectional that is kind of separated from the day-to-day -day of the kid's life. And why not harness that? And so what I find, and as I wrote my book, what I found so interesting is that there was a the very big paraprofessional volunteer um, helper movement going on right as mentoring was beginning to really take shape um, in the 60s and 70s. And somehow our field just stayed apart from that. And we didn't really kind of think of ourselves as in these quasi-therapeutic roles. I think we need to. I think that for a lot of kids, they would be just as well off recruiting their own mentor and that we should reserve the few mentors there are because they're really, you know, Liz mentioned the study the number of people who are willing to make a one year academic or, or calendar year commitment is remarkably small. It's 2.5 million adults. That's about 1% of the population. That's a precious resource. Two and a half million people is a lot of people when you think about that as free labor in the mental health service needs of our, you know, our youth. But we shouldn't be in quote unquote squandering those caring adults with kids who don't who may not need them, who may benefit from either recreational or you know, less intensive intervention. And then the two and a half million that do sign up, what will it look like? A lot of it will be very similar. Mentoring programs will do what they do best, which is recruit, screen, and train volunteers to be really good helpers. The only addition is that instead of delivering the intervention, the mentors of tomorrow really should be supporting the delivery of evidence-based intervention. And so it's really not a big sea change. And in fact, I think it's going to be a relief because if you look at Renee Spencer's work, a lot of mentors feel really overwhelmed with the thought of the, that they are the sole helper of this person and they're supposed to somehow turn around the 
ADHD or the depression or anxiety or whatever it is the you know kid is putting is dealing with, but knowing that they're part of a bigger, broader system where there's lots of other helpers can actually, I think, lighten the burden on today's mentors. Yeah, no, that's an interesting way of of thinking about that, and I don't think there's anything that you're suggesting here that would preclude other key aspects of these relationships, such as fun, right? So I'm I'm interviewing Michael Karcher later today about the role of play in mentoring relationships, and I don't think that's precluded by this more kind of focused approach that you're suggesting, right? Let me say something about that. I think that you know. Cannot be lost in all of this is the need for a good enough relationship. And there's, you know, what are called common factors. There's, you know, things that are universal no matter what approach you're taking empathy, you know, authenticity, and even playfulness that those forming a bond becomes the motivation to do other things. And where does the role of fun come in? I think as a reward structure. So if a young person is learning how to do, you know, meditation for their anxiety. They do that, and then the reward is they go out to a baseball game or to play basketball or to get ice cream or whatever it is they were going to do anyway. It's just how you use it strategically instead of just that being the end. It's the reward for something else. I want to circle back with you, Liz, and ask about uh, another study that you did a while back that I think is relevant to this conversation uh, when we think about how uh, who gets a mentor, right? And Gene, you're suggesting that they're uh, maybe some youth who uh, need mentors, obviously, but maybe a natural mentor, someone they find on their own, um, might be sufficient for them. And, and Liz, you did a study looking at the Ad Health data set, uh, which is a data set where they've been tracking a cohort of people. I think they started in the mid 90s, and now these people are in their, I think, what, late 30s, early 40s, maybe. But they've tracked them like their whole life, right, to see kind of how it's gone, but you went back and did some analysis of for lower income kids who they were finding as mentors um, and and kind of the impact that was having on them. Could you talk a little bit about that paper and and what you found around you know natural mentors for for lower income kids? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this was a, a data set, kind of like you mentioned, that was really unique in offering us the opportunity to follow kids across this pivotal part of development, adolescence and the transition to adulthood, and to follow a really large sample that that's representative of the United States more broadly. So it's rare to have access to this many youth who have answered questions about their experiences with mentors. So we had a sample of over 14,000 kids. And when they entered the study at the very beginning of adolescence, they provided information along with their parents about various indicators of their socioeconomic background. So we had information about their family's income. We actually had a code of how impoverished their neighborhood was versus how well off it was. Um, And we also had a couple of different indicators of how often they were making use of various kinds of public assistance financially. And so we followed these kids across the course of adolescence and young adulthood and asked how many of them found an adult that they would consider sort of a mentor, so someone who had an important positive difference on their life at any time since they they started this study. And we looked at that as a function of their socioeconomic background. And so we found kind of disappointingly that 
despite the fact that a large number of adolescents can identify one of these naturally occurring mentors. So some studies put this at like three quarters of adolescents have someone like this in their lives. Our low income adolescents, using every indicator we had of socioeconomic disadvantage, were less likely to say that they had at least one of these adults in their lives. We looked at this uh, kind of covariating or controlling for the effects of race or ethnicity as well. And we found that the impact of socioeconomic disadvantage remained even when accounting for those effects, but Hispanic and Black youth also showed this same kind of pattern of reduced access to, to naturally occurring mentors. And then kind of relatedly, we asked a lot of questions of the kids about if you are able to identify one of these natural mentors, who are they and what do you do with them? What kinds of support do you get from them? And we found that the lower income youth were more likely to say that they had really close relationships, typically with family members, extended family members, or a close family friend that they met with frequently uh, and got a lot of emotional support from, which on the surface sounds great. It's great to hear that they have those kinds of close bonds um, with family and friends who they consider mentors. The problem is that this then led to them having fewer kinds of adults in their lives that we would call sort of like weak ties or non-familial adults who could bridge them to resources they wouldn't normally have access to. So these kinds of mentors that provide things like access to professional or educational opportunities or kind of serve as role models of a certain kind of person, the adolescent might like to become in a particular professional field. And so we found that these lower income youth were more likely to get the kind of emotional and practical support that you would get from an extended family member, but a less, a lot less likely to say that they had a mentor who was a role model and, and providing them with career and educational advice that they might need. Great. Thanks, Liz. And I think, you know, Mentor's done some work uh, in our Mentoring Effect report that looked at who had a mentor growing up and who that person was and found very similar things to what you found in your study. And it was, you know, disheartening to see that while these young people from, you know, poorer backgrounds did have mentors in their lives, they often were not the types of mentors that, as you said, would bring social capital and connections and, you know, opportunities um, that might be really helpful to them. And so the reason I asked about that study is in light of what we were just talking about around kind of who gets a programmatic mentor. I think one of the things programs do is bring adults with a lot of social capital into the lives of kids that might not have found them if it was just up to them to go fishing on their own, so to speak, because I I feel like your study kind of shows that when they do fish on their own, they find different adults. They find adults, but not those adults. And so I guess my question, Gene, is if we shift the field in the direction that that you're suggesting, is there a worry that perhaps kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds will lose some access to that kind of social capital unless they have, you know, one of these more serious problems that gets them that targeted mentor? Um, like you were suggesting? Well, I mean, I think that left 
to chance, that's what happens. But what some of these models, like Noel Hurd has one, and uh, Sarah Schwartz and, and Liz are developing, um, and ones that we have developed at UMass called Connected Scholars, all of these are very targeted toward teaching um, you know, marginalized youth how to recruit high social capital mentors. And so it's not either or. They come to the, like in one scenario, they come to the program, we determine that, you know, maybe they don't necessarily need all that structure or any of that, but everybody should get trained in how to recruit a high social capital mentor. And what you see when you ask young people, you know, how comfortable they feel asking for help from teachers, from, you know, friends, parents, all of that, the more marginalized youth don't feel comfortable. They haven't grown up in a home where that's normative. Um, and so it's really countering those biases toward reaching out. You know, I, I agree with Eugene about the direction for the field. I, you know, part of me, though, is still tied uh, at some level emotionally <laughs> to the, the more friendship based model. And, you know, part of me hopes that there's still room for that work, you know, because I'm often thinking about outcomes of programs like, you know, happiness and hope for the future and, and I do think that the friendship model can move the needle on some some things that may not be interesting to policymakers, but I, I do think that for some children, that is what they need. They need just some fun experiences, so a role model to perhaps look up to, someone to you know help them be the best person they can be. You know, it's just hard to think about a, a world in which those programs are kind of de-emphasized in favor of, of something that's a little bit more directive, you know, a little bit more focused. Um, but I can see why you've reached that conclusion. And certainly the meta-analysis that you both just did, you know, kind of hints that we're just treading water. And so, you know, I appreciate your perspective on that. Yeah. And I really don't think that it's either or. I just think that you have, with every relationship, including natural mentoring relationships, those relationships were forged around shared interests, shared goals. And that's the way that formal mentoring relationships should be. It doesn't mean we strip them of all those wonderful things. It means that we add a little bit of sort of intentionality to them. Got it. And that makes sense. Complete sense. Gene, I'd, I'd be remiss if I had you on this podcast and didn't ask you some kind of macro level questions about your career you know you've been at this for for a long time and have really just provided this field with so much of of what we know about youth mentoring and how it works best i guess if i could ask you you know looking back over your career a bit what's the one thing you're most proud of in your career you know i would have to say that the students that are out there and you know i know that sounds corny but the fact that when i entered this field there really weren't a lot of colleagues a lot of people doing this kind of thinking about intergenerational relationships in a more programmatic way. I mean, developmental psychologists were noticing that it was a protective factor, but there was very little scholarship around mentoring. And so to see the field, you know, go from that, from where I started in really like 1989, where it is now 30 years later has been really the biggest satisfaction of my career. No, I don't, I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. And, uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, this field has exploded in terms of of the research community. I mean, back when I got into mentoring, there were only like seven or eight researchers you had to know and follow. And that was that was it, right? It was you and Renee and a few others and David and you know. But now there's you know uh, hundreds of of scholars, and I'm constantly coming across 
new things from people that I've never heard of that uh, are excellent work. So it's really great to see that. I guess on the flip side, what's one regret that you have? What's one thing that you wish you'd been able to accomplish that you haven't yet? Well, I I had a regret about conflating my own experience with natural mentors um, with what the potential formal mentors were. And I was sort of so blinded by the feeling I got about the transformative power of a natural mentoring relationship and thinking that that could transfer and that there was some strong analogy between the two types of relationships. And now I don't, I think that the formal relationships are a different kind of thing. They're much more kind of quasi-professional relationships and they need to be framed that way. And yeah, once in a while they become transformative and last forever, but you know, we can't put that lightning in a bottle and expect it for everyone. And so I think that I was sort of blinded by my own experiences. I have to thank Mentor for the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring and really launching that because what that did is it gave me a platform from which to really reflect in a different way. I wasn't constantly just chasing down the next project. I could reflect and build. And the chronicle of evidence-based mentoring has given me you know, such a broad scope of the field just reading all those articles um, and editing those articles, that that that's my regret, is that I should have started with the idea that community psychologists have always had, which is that we can give psychology away through very carefully formed formal relationships. Well, and I'm glad that you do have the Chronicle site because it's an absolute uh, wealth of wisdom and good ideas and research summaries, and um, it is essential reading for anybody uh, working in this field. I've got one last question for you, Gene and, and Liz. I think, you know, if you want to chime in with your thoughts on this as well, but, you know, Gene, I think the goal for any researcher ultimately is to uh, have their work used in making the world a better place, right? And so I just was curious over the course of your career, do you feel like you've been able to influence policymakers, funders, philanthropy, to the degree that you had hoped, or is there still some aspect of the mentoring world where you think like we're still not listening to the research in a way that we we need to? I'd just be curious your thoughts about the influence you feel you've had or or maybe haven't had. It's funny, Mike. It, it's an uphill battle. I, I mean, I see sometimes it really is having an effect. Like when I see you know RFPs that reflect you know concerns about the length and strength of the relationship. And, you know, I can see that my work instantiated in those proposals. At the same time, our field evokes such strong confirmation biases about the transformative power that it's really hard for evidence to break through because people draw on their own experience or their N of one and, um, it, and they generalize from there. And then they hear, you know, that the effect size hasn't changed in 20 years. And that finding it's almost like there's a force field <laughs> that prevents it from, from really penetrating and having sort of a, a, a serious moment. Like if you had, you know, invested millions in a pharmaceutical and nothing had changed in 20 years, you'd say, okay, let's change this. But what we do is we take our experience with the person that we mentored or were men- mentored us and we just conflate it with, you know, great findings for everyone. Yeah. And, and I hear you use the phrase earlier, you know, some of these relationships wind up capturing lightning in a bottle, but then we assume that's that's the norm. And, you know, every conference I go to brings out the mentoring match of the year, and they've been together five years, and they're going to be in each other's weddings someday. And, you know, and I'm like, what percentage of the kids in that program had that experience, right? Right. And, that makes, 
it makes, you know, regular people like you and me feel like, oh, wow, I could never be a mentor because I don't have that kind of time. And yet we, we have valuable things to offer. And so I think it actually does a disservice because it creates unrealistic expectations and it scares away um, everyday people who could make an enormous difference in the life of a marginalized young person. Yeah. And Liz, do you have any thoughts around kind of the influence, uh, maybe as a, a newer scholar in this space? Do you feel like there are opportunities for you to have influence on policy or is that something that we need to build more uh, infrastructure around? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just build on what Jean was sort of saying that the, the relatability of mentoring is sort of a blessing and a curse, right? So the disadvantage is that people are a lot less likely to listen to the research evidence if it disconfirms their personal experiences. But the flip side of that is that as a new researcher, I've been really impressed by how open people are to hearing about the research I'm doing with mentoring. You know, if I give a talk in a at a new institution or in a particular community or to a particular program, people seem really eager to hear what the recent research is and how they might use it to better intervene with kids. And so I've been impressed by that, by people's open openness. And even within the mentoring field, um, working with programs, people's emphasis on learning about research and trying to use it in a way that that helps with their intervention. Thanks. And and I've seen an uptick in, I think, practitioner interest in research. Used to be you could never get anybody to a, a research session, right? But now, now it's standing room only for some of these things. I find that really impressive and, you know, just exciting to see how much thirst there is among practitioners. I mean, even the, the article itself has over 10,000 subscribers, you know, and, and some of it can get pretty far into the weeds and, and people are reading those. I've got one last question for both of you, and I could talk to you for forever. This has been a great conversation, and you're both so smart and have thought so deeply about these issues, but uh, we do have to wrap up. And so I have one final question. That is the bonus question that I'm asking all of my podcast guests this year, and that is this. If you had a magic wand and could change any one thing about the youth mentoring field or the youth mentoring movement, what would you change and why? Liz, we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. I, so I, there's a lot of things that I think about often, but I'll just say as one that I, I wish our interventions had a bigger focus on learning about and also leveraging the existing social environment for the youth. So um, I've been working a lot, as Jean mentioned, with folks like uh, Sarah Schwartz and Renee Spencer to try to figure out how we can allow the mentoring relationship to be a context where the youth is practicing skills and working out things that they're uncomfortable with, but all in the greater purpose of recruiting more supportive people from their own social networks. And I think my work on naturally occurring mentors has led me to believe that this is really going to allow these relationships to have more longevity, more impact, um, and that these relationships that kids can create from their own social networks will be a lot less vulnerable to some of the difficulties that that our traditional formal mentoring programs have. Great. Thanks. How about you, Jean? I would like to see the millions of volunteers who step up each year, their work and their efforts and their time be harnessed to promote the mental health of many more people than they currently do. Um, and I think we can do it. I mean, we have a global shortage of mental health providers. Only about 30% of kids who are suffering ever get any treatment at all. 
And this um, volunteer workforce could really make a huge difference, but it's going to take rigor and a little bit less sort of, um, you know, excitement about what it currently is doing and commitment to improving what it's doing. Great. Thank you, Gene. And, you know, I mentioned I had Sam McQuillan on last episode and he said pretty much the same thing. He's like, we have an opportunity here to bring mental health support to so many more young people and we're just not taking advantage of it in the way that we could. And, and Liz, I've also heard a lot of people echo your sentiment there about a very strengths-based approach and, and trying to, even if you're bringing in a mentor from outside that young person's community or or immediate circle, you know, how can you use that to strengthen what's already in that young person's life? I, I think that's an incredibly valuable um, idea. So uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and uh, sharing the meta-analysis findings and all the details about that and and talking about some of these meteor uh, issues about the future of our field and and where we should go. I just really appreciate the way you both think about this topic and and uh, kind of the direction you're trying to point the field in. It, it really resonates with me, so I appreciate that. Mike, I want, to thank, I want to thank you for your contribution to the field. I mean, you've always been one of the smartest voices in this field, pushing for quality. You really get research at a very fundamental level, but what you also get is practice. And to have that kind of um, ability to straddle the two is really amazing, and I think it really advanced the field. Oh well, thank you, Gene. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been it's been a gratifying career for me in that regard too. And that, uh, you know, I I always hear researchers lamenting, and you know, I asked you the question about are people using your your research? And so I've always tried to be somebody that acts as a bit of an intermediary between those those worlds. And I think um, hopefully it's it's helped people uh, come to the world of research a little bit more. So I want to thank Liz and Jean for a great conversation today. Uh, it was really great to hear your thoughts about all of that. And I want to uh, remind our audience uh, that we've got several more episodes of this series coming up. I'll be released here in the fall of 2019. So keep an eye on the NMRC website for new recordings. And as always, if you want to make some improvements to your program or need help with a challenge that your program is facing, the NMRC offers free technical assistance and consultation nationwide. So all you need to do is go to the NMRC website, nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org. There's a big red uh, get technical assistance button in the upper right corner. Just click that and we'll get you hooked up with uh, one of our cadre of experts and get you the help that your program needs. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thanks again for joining us today. And remember, you know, research may seem definitive, but I think we truly decide what's meaningful and important for our field based on that research through dialogue like we had today and by keeping open hearts and minds about what that research means. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. Thanks. Bye.